Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. If you don't have a Bible, you should. Certainly for Sunday mornings, but certainly for your own lives. So if you don't have a Bible, please do not leave here without one today. They're available to you. Um, but it would help in t- this morning's study, I believe. It's always good to have the Word in front of you. There are times maybe you get a little bored with my message, and now you can go read something or whatever in the passage. You can kind of look ahead, or you can, if I say something, you're kind of like, how do you come up with that? You can go back and look at it. So it's always good to have a Bible uh, that is there uh, in front of you. Now, last week when we were together, we began a study of the book of Esther. And so we were introduced there to some key players, one in particular, whose title is a fellow by the name of Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus. And he, we know that name, it means the venerable king. So that's not his real name. His real name is Xerxes. Xerxes the Great, Xerxes the First. But he became so much known by that title that a lot of people in history, the Bible refers to him simply as Ahasuerus. And he was the king who ruled over the Persian Empire from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. So for about 20 years, he ruled over this world-dominating empire. Now, Persia didn't conquer the entire world, but basically they did. The, the entire known world, it seems, or much of it in that time, he was in charge of. And we know that during his empire, the Persian empire was about 250 years. During his reign, that 20-year period, Persia had grown to the zenith of the empire. It, was, it had spread over more land than at any other time in the history of that particular empire. Kind of smack dab right in the middle there. And I mentioned last week that they stretched out to over 7.5 million square miles of land. I don't know if you know, the United States, the contiguous United States is about 3 million square miles. So twice the size of the United States, this empire spread at a time where there wasn't mass communication or travel or, or things like the high-speed travel and so on. So it's a significant thing. Esther 1.1 tells us that they reigned from India to Ethiopia, quite a bit of land. And yet despite that, Xerxes becomes dissatisfied that he doesn't have even more land. I, I think that describes us as Americans, by the way. We got more than most people in the entire world, and yet often we're dissatisfied that we don't have more than what we currently have. And Xerxes was dissatisfied that he did not rule over even more land, despite ruling over 7.5 million square miles of land. And it was that dissatisfaction I drew your attention to last week that led him to decide to attack the tiny, at the time, little nation-state of Greece. Now, Greece would go on to be a world-ruling empire itself, but at this time here, 4785 or so B.C., it was roughly the size of Greece today. It was a relatively small area of land, significant certainly, but a small area of land. And so he decided he was going to attack Greece and from Greece move into Europe, essentially. And that became known, I mentioned last week, as the Battle of Thermopylae. And so, dissatisfied that he doesn't have enough, he wants a little bit more, and it brings us to the reason for the events of chapter 1. As I pointed out, this is our review, as I pointed out, he felt he needed to throw a feast to prove to all of his officials and military leaders, look, we have the wealth, we have the power, we have the status, we can do this. Even though it's miles and miles away and we got to gather everybody there, look at us, we're the most powerful, wealthy, glorious empire on the face of the earth. 
And to prove it, I'm going to throw a 180-day party for you where anything goes and you can have anything you want, food and drink or whatever it may be. And we have plenty of resources to do it. We can conquer tiny little Greece. Well, unfortunately for Xerxes, that feast didn't end so well. It was designed to distinguish him as the great and mighty ruler of the great and mighty empire. But instead, if you were with us, you know at the end of it, he comes out looking quite foolish. Because here he's trying to prove how great and mighty the empire is, how powerful it is, how they can uh, impress their will on anyone they want to, and his own wife won't listen to him. When he asks her, to, or he summons her to come in, she won't even listen to him. And no doubt officials are thinking, how do you think the, the king of Greece, or whatever they called it, the person in charge of Greece is going to do so, when you can't even get people to come and listen to you? And so they're in a pickle of a situation. That's the Hebrew. They're in a pickle, uh, as you can see there. And it left them really in a precarious position. And so something would need to be done to make sure that they sort of spin doctor this thing. And so you have the counselor suggesting, well, you got to fire that lady first and foremost. Fire the queen. How dare she not come when you wanted her to come? Fire her. Second thing is, let's make a law. Love this law. Can't believe they even thought it would be a good idea. Let's pass a law that would firmly establish that men are in charge. That was the law. It says here, Esther chapter 1, verse 22, he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man is master of his house. This is our idea. This is the best we got. This is what we're going to come up with here. And so they do that. Now, surely not the ending to this feast. What Xerxes was looking for was to gather everybody together, give them the speech. It's like the football coach right before the game. We're going to give the speech, and we're going to get out there, and we're going to get them. And everyone, yeah, and they run out, and they touch the sign on the wall or whatever. Everyone's fired up to go win this game. That's what he was expecting would happen. And instead, everybody's kind of, i got to tell my wife I'm in charge. And she, she's going to be so upset with me, you know, whatever. Not what they were hoping for. Now, it's not recorded in our Bibles, but the Persians eventually do go into that battle. It's 480 B.C. I've told you it's called the Battle of Thermopylae. They lose that battle. Or sometimes it's easier for the defense. We just got to hold our ground. So I, I'm not sure losing is the right term, but they didn't win. And they eventually go home and they, they got a you know, tail between their legs and they got to go back here. And so they basically lost that battle. Again, that's the movie 300 that came out a little while ago. That battle and the defeat of the, the Persians would go on to be a turning point in world history. Because as I said, Persia was building up to becoming, uh, it, remember it was at its zenith during um, Xerxes' rule, well, after that, it began to diminish in its, it took 150 more years, but after that, it begins to diminish. And eventually, that little tiny nation state of Greece will grow to the place where they go on to become the new world ruling empire uh, of the day, right around 333 with Alexander the Great. And so this is a significant thing. We kind of just read through it. Really, not a lot of mention is even made of that particular battle. But the whole purpose of chapter 1 is to get us to chapter 2. How's that, linear thinkers? You know, the whole purpose, chapter 1, is to get us to chapter 2. And what chapter 1 does, and hopefully the, the historical information I brought in as well, what it does is it provides us with a little bit of insight into the emotional background of the king. And so here's this king, great king of the world. Everything in life is great, right? If you're the king of the world? Not necessarily. 
kings of the world, they still have hearts. And things go on in their hearts as well. And so there's emotional stuff that is going on inside of King Xerxes. Number one is his, he and his wife are now estranged. He has no more wife, so to speak. And the second thing is, he, I'm going to prove to everyone what a great emperor I am. He only became an emperor uh, six years before this. And then he calls his party three years after that to prove, like, look at me, look who I am, let's make a name for myself. And now he loses. And so all the doubts and all the questions about who I am and am I a good king and, and all that kind of stuff, no doubt, are there. And there's an emotional thing that is going on in this guy. And I would suggest to you, that's what brings us to chapter 2, where it says, now after these things, after the situation with Vashti and the feast, and after the battle of Thermopylae and the defeat. And so let's read the first few verses of chapter 2. It says, now after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young women, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti, this pleased the king, and he did so. Now you need to remember, this is a foreign pagan empire. So here you have the Bible talking about a king having a harem of women and all this kind of stuff. This is not prescriptive. This is not something we look at and say, well, the Bible says it's okay. This is historical information of a pagan king and what he was doing. Okay, so people that want to kind of point at the Bible and say it allows this and causes that and says this, read it in the context of it. This is an unbeliever. And you know what unbelievers do? Unbelieving things. And that's what this guy is doing here. And so here you have this guy in verse 1. It said, after these things, when the anger of the king had abated. So now he's not as angry anymore that his wife didn't listen to him. And there's a, a word of wisdom for you there, not in that weird sense that some people suggest it, but here's just a word that you can apply to your life. Try not to make decisions when you're furious, because inevitably you're going to mess up and make a mistake. And then when you come down out of that anger, now you've got to deal with the consequences of the foolishness of what you did while you were angry. And so now that his anger has abated, here you have this fellow here remembering what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, the way that I see that and the way that I read, read that is not that horrible, terrible thing she did, but the fact that she showed modesty and didn't want to come naked before a thousand other people wearing only her crown. That he realizes what she did essentially was right and that nonetheless she's been booted out. And now I've got to deal with the consequences of all of this thing. So the king, he has a lot to be angry about. All right, he made some mistakes here. His wife wouldn't listen to him. He goes off to this battle and he loses it. We know historically that this king was not, uh, and, and some people even say it this way, not all there, that there was something that was going on inside of this guy that wasn't quite stable. For instance, I'll give you an example. When they came back from the battle and he talked to his generals, so why did we not win this thing? They blamed it on the fact that the sea wasn't cooperative with their, and yeah, you can understand that, you know, well, we had to go against the sea and we got there later and then it was, whatever. And so his decision then was to send his slaves down to the ocean and whip the ocean for its poor behavior for one straight year. 
And she got slaves just bait in the water, you know, for one straight year to punish the sea. I mean, so this guy wasn't all there in, in so many ways. But what we're seeing now in chapter 2 is that anger is going to transition into a state of depression. And, and I don't think that's that unusual, that the emotions, all of that is kind of working in on him. And the embarrassment of his defeat, the reality that he doesn't have a wife that he can come home to. And, and I've said this before, you know, you can go be going through a lot of things in your life. Work could be rough, family situations, you know, extended families can be difficult. But if you can come home to a place of respite, you can deal with a lot of things. And this guy doesn't have that place to go home to. He doesn't have that wife now that he can go to for encouragement and to deal with that uh, depression, to share his despondency with his former wife. And in that sorrow, he remembers what had been decreed against her, and he remembers this, that there's no altering of the decree. So most of us, we would think, well, you're the king. Do whatever you want. Call her back. Tell her, psych. You know, I was just kidding. Or whatever. Say everything's fine. You know, bygones be bygones or whatever. But the reality is, look at Esther chapter 119. This was the instructions given him earlier, the advice given to him earlier. It says, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Medes and the Persians so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never to come. So that alludes to the fact that the law can't be repealed. If you look over in the book of Daniel, you remember Daniel was dealing with the Medes and the Persians as well. And Daniel there, in Daniel chapter 6, we read this. It said, These men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes of the Persian and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And so we think oftentimes a, an emperor or a king will have unlimited power. But the reality is in the Persian Empire, there were limits that were put on the king's power. And one of those was if there was a law that was put in place, it could not be altered, even if the king himself wanted to alter it. And so here in the context of Esther chapter 2, Xerxes is realizing the error that he has made, and he also realizes nothing I can do about it i got to deal with it now. There's no changing the decision, regardless of how remorseful he might feel about the decision. Vashti's gone. She's been deposed, and no amount of regret will take back the consequences of that decision. Now, he's feeling bad. He's feeling grief. He's feeling sorrow about something that he has done. Now, the proper response, by the way, that uh, sorrow, that grief, over something we have done is good. I would suggest to you it's from God. If it's not the Holy Spirit working in the life of a person, at the very least, it's a person's conscience that is at work. And that's a God-given thing. But his response, the response of this foreign king, should be to repent of his actions. So as I said, his sorrow is good. And I think it is God-given. God is using the natural consequences of his sinful behavior, which was firing Vashti there, uh, and all that was associated with that, and, the foolish, and that foolish decision to point out to Xerxes that his actions were sinful. The proper response should be to embrace the sorrow and come to the place of repentance. This is what the Bible calls godly sorrow, or depending on your version, godly grief. 
It's the sort of sorrow that leads to repentance. This is how Paul talks about in the New Testament. He says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Regret, I should say, not regret. All right? Whereas worldly grief produces only death. So we, we always use the example. There's plenty of people that are sorry for the things that have happened. You go to a prison and you, you just ask around. You're sorry for what, what you did? Of course. I wish I was a little wiser about it and I didn't get caught or whatever. Everyone's sorry that they got caught, but not necessarily sorry for what they did. So there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And Xerxes here, he doesn't deal with his sorrow by repenting of his wrong and then catch this, and looking to God for strength to deal with the consequences of his wrong. You see, I think a lot of times where we want to repent of our wrong and expect that God will take away all the consequences. Oh God, I'm so, so sorry. But God, I told you I was sorry. How come I still have to deal with the consequences of my action? Because the consequences of your action are going to come one way or the other. And so we repent of our behavior, our action, and we seek the Lord at the same time for the strength to deal with the consequences of that action. That's not what our friend Xerxes does here in this particular passage. Rather, notice what he does. Rather than dealing with it and looking to God for strength, he looks to mask his sorrow. He looks to mask that sense of guilt. It says there in verse 2, then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Rather than dealing with it, he looks to mask it. And I think that's a very common thing that happens in our day. I think a lot of us do that as well. And so rather than properly dealing with the conviction of sin that God brings, the tendency of a lot is to mask the pain that the conviction causes. And so maybe we would distract ourselves. And so we're dealing with something rather than perhaps going somewhere, you know, into a, a, our prayer closet or whatever and dealing with it we'll just put the TV on. And before I know it, I'll get into the story and I won't be thinking about the conviction that I was dealing with. That's masking it, taking our mind off of it. Some of us, we look to numb the pain. And so we get a stiff drink or some other narcotic substance. Others of us, we look to justify the behavior. Or hopefully, I can find some expert that is out there to tell me what I'm really feeling remorseful over, guilty over, uh, convicted over. I'm just responding to that the wrong way. Because this expert that they have paraded out there for me on Oprah or something like that said that I shouldn't be feeling guilty over this. That that's just sort of a culturally imposed thing that has armed me as opposed to the Holy Spirit is himself. Himself. So what the king's advisors counsel is that he mask his pain with sensual pleasure. That's how he's going to get past this and ultimately a new wife. I would encourage you, if God brings about conviction on you, that's a gift. It's a gift when God brings conviction of sin in your life. And it shouldn't be avoided. It shouldn't be ignored. It shouldn't be run away from, but it should be embraced because the Lord wants to take us further in our walk with the Lord that our sin is keeping us right here in. And so rather than masking it, can confess it, let the Lord do a good work and move forward. Now, back to verse 2. I'm going to read a little longer here. It says, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. Under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given them 
and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So the plan is essentially to have a national beauty contest. The winner of this contest will become the next queen. Notice verse 4, it says that the idea pleased the king. He said, all right, that should work. Something to take, off, take his mind off the sorrow and the remorse, something to distract him of his past, quote-unquote, mistake. We know it as sin. And so, as it says in verse 3, a decree goes forth that all the beautiful young virgins of this huge empire are to be brought uh, to uh, Susa there, where the capital of the city is. Verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. He was a Benjamite. Benjaminite. He had been carried away from Jerusalem, or it says who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, which is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased Haggai and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace. And he advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So while all that's going on with uh, this plan for a beauty contest and so on, we're introduced to a new fellow, Mordecai, who's going to go on to become quite significant uh, in this particular book. So verse 5 introduces us to him. We learn some things about Mordecai. Number one, we learn that he is a Jew that is in Susa. So he's a Jewish guy. He's in Susa, which means he's a captive. We read there in verse 6 that he was carried away among the captives from Jerusalem. And this was during the Babylonian era of world rule. It was the Babylonians that took him apart. Remember, there was three waves of Babylonian captivity where they would go and take the Jews and bring them out. First one is about 605. The second one is 597. And in 597, that's when Mordecai's family, really, would be taken away into captivity here. You can read about that if you have some notes. 2 Kings 24 and 2 Chronicles chapter 36 speak of it. That was the time they went in and they took actually the king of, uh, or the, yeah, he was the king of Israel or Judah uh, at that particular time. Jeconiah, he was taken at that time. Well, Mordecai and his family are taken there as well. That year, as I said, is 597. The year of this event that we're reading of in Esther chapter 2 is 479. So that's 120 some years later. And we do know in the Bible there are guys and gals that live you know, super long years or whatever, but that's all pre-flood. You know, David would talk about uh, 70, 80 years, if you're lucky, to live on the earth. And so Mordecai was not alive when they were captured. And so the way that we would read the who in verse 6, where it says, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem, 
that the one that was carried away from Jerusalem was either Kish or Shimei, or both of them perhaps, and that Mordecai was born into captivity. Because again, it was 120 years earlier. Nonetheless, here he is in uh, captivity. And we might say, well, Mordecai, why are you there? Pastor Greg told us last week that the Jews had an opportunity to leave. They could have gone. Cyrus said, anybody who wants to go back to Jerusalem can go back to Jerusalem. Mordecai, what are you still doing in Jerusalem? Well, another thing you should take notice of, again, we are in 479 B.C. King Cyrus gave permission for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, and only a few of them, relatively speaking, went back. But he gave permission for that in 536 B.C. That's 60 years earlier. And so it's quite possible that Mordecai wasn't even alive when Cyrus gave permission for the Jews to go back. And if he was, he was no doubt a young kid. And, you know, can I go back, Mom? No. Okay, I can't go. You know, because Mom said I can't go. And so if, if we look at this and think, well, Mordecai, you know, you dug your own bed, buddy, your own grave. You shouldn't have been there in the first place. You and, and little Esther. But more likely, the distinct possibility is that he wasn't even alive at that particular uh, time. What we know for certain is that Hadassah wasn't alive, or little Esther wasn't alive here. If we look at verse 6, we are introduced to this, young, this woman named Hadassah, uh, or Esther. Esther would be her Persian name that was given to her. Uh, and verse 7 points out that she was a young woman. So likely she was in her teen years. And again, the, uh, the decree to go back to Jerusalem was 60 years earlier. So she was not alive at that particular point in time. Notice the daughter points, or excuse me, the author points out that she was raised by Mordecai. Mordecai is her older cousin. Uh, it referred to there as the daughter of his uncle. We just say cousin. Uh, but this isn't one of those situations where all the cousins gather and you got a whole bunch of kids the same age and they, they grow up together. This is a situation where Mordecai is 20 years, 30 years, 40 years older than his cousin. And he will go on to raise her as his own daughter because her parents die there in captivity. The author points out that not only is she a young unmarried woman, but notice it says there in verse 7 that she, is she has a beautiful figure and is lovely to look at. Exactly what the king's officers are looking for for this beauty pageant, where they are scouring the empire to find those women, young women, virgin women, that are, uh, have a beautiful appearance and are lovely to look at. And so she is exactly what uh, they are desiring. And so they bring her into custody. We see there in verse 8 that she's taken into custody and she's put under the uh, direction of this guy whose name is Haggai. Now, we don't have it in the Bible, but Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that there was 400 women that were entered into this beauty contest. And so Esther is one of those 400 uh, women. And you would think, well, wow, what an opportunity. Not necessarily, because the stakes are super high. So if you think of the, you know, the Miss America pageant or something, you know, and you got these 50 women, and they're all already winners, you know, as they say. And, you know, you're the lady from Delaware, and you're from New Jersey or whatever. And if I don't win, at least I'm Miss New Jersey. You know, that's not so bad. And I could always say I was in the pageant. Uh, well, imagine if it was like this. Hey, if you don't win Miss America, we kill you. You know, that, that's pretty high stakes. 
And the stakes here for these 400 women, if that number is accurate that Josephus gives us, is one of them will become the queen of Persia. All the rest of them get to go into the king's harem, which numbered nearly 1,000, and likely never see the king again and never be allowed to marry again or anything like that. Essentially live out their days as a widow for the rest of their lives. And so the stakes are pretty high here. It does not seem that any of these women uh, have a choice in the matter. You, you look pretty. Come on. You're with me. Me? What? No, I don't want to go anywhere. You're with us. I suspect some of the women were like, awesome. Great opportunity. Let's see what happens. But there's nothing to indicate that Mordecai and Esther sort of pushed for this or were moving for this or hoping for this or whatever. What it seems is, is that the officials came, saw Esther, noticed that she was lovely to look upon or whatever the phrase is, and said, you come with us. And that Mordecai simply just said to her, go with them. You know, he's the dad or whatever. And she's looking to dad and he's saying, just go. The Lord will be with you and so on. The reason I bring it up is there's a number of commentators that really take Mordecai and Esther to task for this, that they were worldly and scheming and all that, and I just don't see that in the text. I respect those folks, but I I just don't see that there. There's nothing that seems to indicate that, that anything that is going on is but a forced situation, that they have to go. And here they are, they're captives in a foreign land, and that's just the way life was, going to have to be for them. Now, the account continues in verse 9. It says, The young woman pleased him, that's that guy, Haggai, and won his favor, and he quickly provides for her, uh, basically to put her in a place of advantage. Good place amongst the harem, food, people to help her, uh, and so on. He's drawn to her. Now, Haggai would have been a eunuch, serving in the king's palace in one form or another. And in this case, he served by being in charge of the king's harem. And now this beauty pageant as well. As a eunuch, Haggai would have been castrated at an early age and with the significant decrease in testosterone would not have been a sexual threat to the king at all. And as no sexual threat, you can be in charge of the harem. And something catches his eye. Something about Esther catches his eye. Now, he's not sexually drawn to her. The castration has taken that. So that's not what is catching her eye. And it's probably not just her physical beauty. Boy, you're lovely to look at. It's probably not that as well because all of the women in this group are physically, no doubt, beautiful. And so it's not that as well. There has to be something more that is drawing him to Esther. And I think we can say without a doubt that it's Esther's character. That her beauty seems to be much, uh, just as much about her inner beauty as it is about her outer beauty. And so the Proverbs say this. It says, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. And that's exactly what is happening with Esther. There's an aspect of her character that has caught the attention of this uh, Haggai fellow where she has found favor and high esteem in the sight of this particular man. And you can imagine that all of the other women in this group of 400 are jockeying with one another 
jockeying for the best position so that the king passes by, maybe they'll catch his eye or something. Jockeying for the best beauty supplies, I don't know what that means, but something like that, or jewelry or something that will, maybe there's a big room filled with jewelry. Ladies, take whatever you want, and people are knocking each other uh, to get in there and get the best stuff, and Esther just sort of politely waits her turn or something like that. But there's something about Esther where she just, it seems to indicate she just simply was who she was. And that became far more attractive to this eunuch, as we'll see at the close of this chapter, and the king as well. That becomes far more attractive. And so Esther becomes the top choice of Haggai. It says in verse 9, the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And as I pointed out, he begins to provide extra for her. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to do so. But every day he walked in front of the court to find out how Esther was doing. Now typically, it's not a good idea to hide who you are as a believer. Oftentimes when we're hiding who we are as believers, it's, it's oftentimes connected with a bit of compromise that we do so. But for whatever reason, Mordecai counsels his niece to keep quiet about the fact that she is a Jew. And perhaps he, he knew that if she came out and explained that she was a Jew, that she would automatically uh, for, be disqualified from the competition and thrown into the harem. Maybe he expected there might be some anti-Semitic response against her as a Jew. Perhaps there was a more carnal reason involved. We don't, we don't know. It doesn't actually tell us. But he counsels her to keep quiet about that fact, at least for the time being. And then as a good dad, quote-unquote, he's not a real father in this sense, but as a good dad, Mordecai, he maintains real close tabs on his daughter, on Esther, to see how she's doing through the whole process. Verse 12 continues, Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, and when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashkaz, the king's eunuch, another eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Verse 12 says, 12 months the ladies were prepared. It, it says they were beatified or beautified. Notice it says six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments. So this was a one-year-long spa day, which sounds pretty nice in some regards. But at the end of a year, the time came for each of the young women to begin to make their way before the king. And... and I couldn't get past this this week. This is a very uncomfortable account in Scripture. You know, a lot of times we paint this picture, oh, Esther, she's so sweet and lovely. Oh, I love Esther. You know, this kind of thing. The reality is, these women were brought into a situation and said, get in there and sleep with the king tonight. Whether they wanted to or not. This is not a lovely story in our Bibles. And nonetheless, it is in here, and so... We look at it, but each woman would have to go into the king's chambers in the evening, and then in the morning, she would make her way to the king's existing harem. And so their part of 400, there was another part, and again, they estimate that it would go up to about 1,000 people. So you have five, 600 other women over there, and you just go in. 
And are those other women, hi, we're so glad you're here. Probably not. And so she goes into that particular place there and would await word. Will I be picked to be queen or won't I? Will I go on to be sort of the right-hand lady of the king? Or will I essentially go on to become a nobody and a widow in this land? So this one time, this one moment, was her chance to impress the king. To make a significant enough impact on her that when this contest comes to an end, as he recalls the 400 women that he has seen seen over this year or so, that her name, her face, or whatever will come to mind. And so they're going to try to make this impression. It says because of that, she was, uh, they were all permitted, verse 13, to ask whatever it is that they wanted to bring, whatever she desired she could take with her, something that perhaps would cause her to stand out, you know, some jewelry, some headdress type of thing, whatever it might be, something that would cause her to stand out where the king would say, well, that lady that came in with that long flowing, I like her. I don't remember her name, but go get her. Something that would cause him to stand out. Now Esther, verse 15, doesn't ask really for anything. She, she doesn't jockey. She doesn't say, well, that's mine, or anything like that. She just says essentially to Haggai, well, what do you think I should ask for? And she relies on his advice, verse 15. It's when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own, to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. And now she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So she wasn't going to rely on some gimmick or something that would cause her to stand out. She wasn't really even relying at all on her outer beauty and trying to magnify that in some way with some sexy clothing or something like that or all sorts of makeup or something like that. She was simply going to take whatever the king, or excuse me, Haggai advised for her. Verse 16, when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. It may not mean this, but it seems to indicate that the contest was over once Esther went in. It may not necessarily mean that, but she is the one ultimately that won grace and favor in the sight of the king over all of the other women. And so she is the one that will be named the queen. The royal crown is put on her head. She's main queen instead of Vashti. And to celebrate that, verse 18 tells us, the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. This guy liked to have feast. And so he throws another feast. He's very creative with the name for it. He calls it Esther's Feast. As you can see there, not very creative with his marketing for me more so than the feast more exciting the king granted a remission of all taxes in the provinces and he gave gifts with royal generosity that's pretty exciting here i would sure i'd love to come to the wedding reception but if you give me a year off from taxes i'm choosing that one there and so it seems uh, maybe a month maybe a year uh, to celebrate the fact that she's the new queen. Now, last week when I was closing out our time, I, I made this kind of statement. I said, all right, great, nice story. But why are you telling us this? Why, why are you telling us? Why is it in the Hebrew Scriptures the internal workings of a foreign empire and a foreign marriage? Why do we need to know about this party that happened there? Why do we need to know that, of this dispute that occurred between a couple of 
this married couple here. Well, we find out the reason for the inclusion of chapter 1. So remember I said you have to come back this week? Well, you, you all did. Good for you. Okay, and I said we find out, what we find out that the inclusion of chapter 1 in the canon of Scripture is to bring us here to the information and the events of chapter 2. We're told about the marital dispute because it's that dispute which opens up the door for the events of chapter 2. That is, that would allow for Esther to go on to become the new queen. So let's just pull back just for a second here, and let me remind you of some things we've been looking at over the last two weeks. The year is 486 B.C., and Darius I, the king, the emperor of Persia, has died. 486 B.C. So he's going to be replaced by, uh, by his successor, which is Xerxes. So it brings this young man, Xerxes, now into power. We, it seems he wants to prove himself, how great he is, how powerful he is, and so he immediately begins plans to expand the empire. But to do so, he has to convince his officials, his military leaders and other princes, that this is a good idea to do so. We have the resources to be able to do so. And so this new young king, trying to impress others, throws a huge party, 180 days, where he can show off the wealth and the glory of the empire. And unfortunately, because of some poor decisions, that party doesn't end the way he would have liked. It ends in a royal dispute, and it ends with his wife being banished uh, as queen, um, kicked out as queen. Now, the empire eventually goes into that battle. Three years later, they lose it. And the king has to return home with no one to bring him comfort, so to speak. And so they come up with a plan to replace that queen. And it just so happens that the woman that replaces the earlier queen is a young Jewish girl who happens to get selected to that position. Now, from the perspective of God, as we're observing this, that's a lot of chess pieces being moved around the board, isn't it? to get us to chapter 2, to the end of chapter 2, where Esther is now going to be queen. A lot of chess pieces being moved around the board. It's been said that a good chess player is thinking four or five moves ahead of the move they are presently making. And so they're, make, they're making a move knowing they're probably going to do this in return, and then two moves later, and, and so on. Four or five moves ahead. Here, in these two chapters, in that little synopsis that I ran you through, we see the Lord moving his chess pieces around the board to bring us to this place where Esther will be the queen. But that's not the end of the game. There's still a whole lot more moves left in this game of chess involving the king of Persia, involving the new queen, involving various government officials, and eventually involving the entire race of Jewish people and the future race of Jewish people, which will include a little boy born in an obscure village outside of Jerusalem. There's a reason why all of these events are occurring, because Jesus will be a direct descendant of these people. And if these people are wiped out and there's not someone in the palace to put away that, uh, that decree that the Jewish people should be killed, then God has a problem, so to speak. And so God is at work here. Now notice, you maybe you have, I've talked about God a lot during our, our message today, but his name is never again mentioned in this chapter. I pointed this out. He's never going to be in the book, never in this chapter, not mentioned once in the entire bit of material that we looked at today. And yet, I think any of us that are honest, it's impossible for us to miss the fact that he is all over the verses of this chapter. 
and the pages of this book. And so to return then to the chess analogy, four or five moves from now, the Lord is going to need Esther there in the palace. And so he has begun moving the pieces around now to get her into the palace for then. This entire course of events is no accident. Esther doesn't end up in this position as queen because of some good fortune or because of some happenstance or because the king happened to be in a good mood the night she came in and so she gets selected. You know, boy, how random that is. She's here by God's design to accomplish his specific purposes at a time that he sees fit. And if I could just say this for us now, 2,500 years after that, that exact same truth applies to your life and to my life as well. That each one of us are here by God's design in our little lives, our little kingdoms, to accomplish God's specific purposes at the time that He sees fit for us to do so. And so no matter who you are in this room or what your life presently entails, each one of us has a place in God's plan. Each one of us. I think a lot of times we think, well, yeah, I'm sure he does. And that lady over there, she does. She's something. But not me. Each one of us. For such a time as this. Now, we may not go on to become queen or some other official of the largest empire of the day. But that does not diminish the fact that we are a part of what God is doing here on the earth. There's a reason why you are in this room at this time to hear this message on this day. And so wherever you are in life, whatever it is you're presently doing in this life, you need to know this, that you have a a place in the plan of God. Now, your place, your purpose might not be some big thing that's going to impact an entire race of people. It may be some small minor thing that impacts just a few or perhaps just one other person. But the key thing to know is that God has a plan and he has worked things out in such a way to incorporate your life into that plan. I want you to notice one other thing. God is at work here in this book and in all of this, he's using unbelievers so far. Wicked unbelievers. Remember that party we talked about last week? So God is at work here. He's moving the course of events around to bring Esther to this particular place in the kingdom. And through all of this so far, he has been using wicked unbelievers as a part of that process. And that's a key thread that runs through this book. It's a theme, which is that the outworking of God's plan cannot be thwarted by the forces of evil. The outworking of God's plan cannot be thwarted by the forces of evil. So whether that be the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, or just the -the run-of-the-mill wicked person that you work with, or that is in your family, or whatever it may be. In fact, what we see many times, it is precisely because of the wicked actions of the enemies of God that the plan of God is accomplished. And that's a theme that runs through this. So no wicked person can dissuade you from accomplishing the plan that God has for you to accomplish. And what I would suggest is that we open up our eyes and say, all right, Lord, why am I here? What do you have for me? What are you calling me to do? And so my prayer for us has been this, that the Lord would bless each of us as we seek to discover what our part is in God's plan and, and I think this is just as important through the process, 
that he would give us the peace that we might rest comfortably as we await seeing him work out his plans in each of our lives. Amen? Would you agree with that? And we'll close with that. Let's pray. Father, that's a high calling. Lord, I'm convinced that there are far more people that could accomplish your plan better than I can. I'm certainly convinced that you could get it done much better without the use of any human. And yet, for whatever reason, you choose to work through human instruments to accomplish your purposes. And Lord, even as we began our time together praying about your work in the world, Lord, you have chosen to use us, those of us that believe in that process. You even use the unbeliever in that process to bring about your will. And so, Lord, we want to be used in a great way. We want to be open to the ways that you want to work. We want to submit ourselves to your leading and your sovereignty. And so we do ask that you would guide us and direct us daily, Lord, that our hearts would be right before you, that we would come moment by moment submitting ourselves to what God might want to accomplish. And Lord, as we look at this story, this account, it causes us to have a confidence in you. And Father, I pray that when we take our eyes off of you, we look to ourselves, we look to the circumstances, we look to the forces of evil that are around us, Lord, that you would just impress upon our hearts even the aspect of this message. Keep your eyes on me. Keep looking at me. So Father, we present ourselves, as Paul says, living sacrifices that you might accomplish your will through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.